I hope you kept your place in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 28. This will serve as the basis for the morning message. I'd like to add one more verse to this. This also found in First Chronicles, chapter 16, in verse 11, where David writes these words. He says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Last week we looked at the 139th Psalm, penned by David under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what we learned was that the key to self-acceptance and a true sense of who we are is to be found in knowing God. David cited two of the many attributes of God that helped him come to the conclusion that he was fearfully and wonderfully made, both in his psychological makeup as well in his physical makeup. And certainly, in our case, if we are in Christ, we are new creations. We have been remade, just like David was when he came to know God. I thought it would be appropriate, if not necessary, this morning to talk to you about how do we come to know God. I don't want to assume anything, and therefore, let's look into the Word of God and see See what he teaches us about knowing him. Did it strike you as odd as we were reading First Chronicles chapter 28? That when David came to the point of transferring power from himself to Solomon his son, he gathered all the people who were leaders in the nation of Israel. That's not odd. That's very ordinary. It would be expected. And as he gathered all the leaders, and they were listening undoubtedly with great expectation to hear what he would say, not only to them, but also to his son, whom God had tabbed to be his successor. And then in verse 9 of 1 Chronicles 28, David made this stunning statement, Know the God of your father. And serve Him with a whole heart. One would think that David would have said, for instance, in front of all these leaders, who were military leaders and civic leaders, he would have said, Son, you need to take a crash course in military strategy. You are not a person of war. You need to understand because we are surrounded by many enemies And you are the leader of this nation, Israel. Or he might have told him to bone up on his political science. Because if warfare was not to be the thing he was to engage in, certainly diplomacy would be. Not to mention the internal governing of the nation of Israel. But he makes the statement, know the God of your father. The word translated know is a word which speaks of experiential knowledge. Not knowledge that's confined to the head, although it would include some of that. We need to know God is all-knowing. We need to know that God is ever-present so that we can really worship Him properly. But if that is as far as it goes, just intellectualizing it, it's not enough. We need to know that in our personal experience with God. We come to know Him in that way. The word translated know... When carefully studied, the Old Testament yields this piece of vital information. That this 
matter of knowing Him literally means we are in a process of knowing God. Throughout the rest of my life, throughout the rest of your life, if we are going to know God, it's not something that we do in an instant. It's not something we do in a day or a year or decades. It's a lifelong, and yes, let me say it, it's an eternal pursuit. We will continue throughout eternity to have God unfold to us the knowledge of who He is as we relate to Him. Now, I'm going to speculate a little bit here using my sanctified imagination. And I want to speculate in this regard. You noticed in this text of Scripture that in verse 5, this is what David writes, Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons. If we were to turn to the third chapter of First Chronicles, easily overlooked because the first nine or so chapters have to do with the genealogy in the history of Israel. Just so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But in the third chapter, we gain this information we don't find ever, anywhere else in Scripture about the number of sons whom David had. Counting Solomon, he had 19 sons. By this time, Amnon was dead, killed by his brother Absalom. By this time, Absalom was dead. Amnon, son number one. Absalom, son number three. By this time, Absalom was dead, killed by the troops of David because Absalom had led this great rebellion against his father and had actually dethroned David. But under the leadership of David's general Joab, the forces of Absalom were defeated and Absalom himself was killed. So that reduces the number besides Solomon to 16 sons. My speculation is he gave responsibilities in his kingdom to all of his sons. And his words to those sons were not unlike his words to this son who was going to be the king. You, my son, Daniel was his second son, so let's just put Daniel in there. You, my son Daniel, know the God of your father as you discharge your service to the Lord. There's no greater occupation that you or I can find ourselves in than getting to know God. Your calling is to be one who knows and follows God. Your job in the world is your place of ministry. And surely God has called you, if He's called you to be His child, He's called you to be His minister in your place of work in the world, wherever that may be. This dignifies us, and it also gives us purpose. It's sobering to think that God has given us this kind of charge in our lives. The ministry is not just for people who preach, who earn their living, from doing what I'm doing and other things associated with the work of the Lord in His kingdom. That's not a true understanding of Scripture. Because we are a royal priesthood. All of us are part of the priesthood. It was true in Jesus' day and it's true in our day. And I believe it was true in the way in which David prepared his sons, all of them, for his departure. I would imagine that the majority of people who claim to know God really are mistaken 
most people who claim to know God only know about God. I know Billy Graham. That name may mean nothing to some of you, but for those of us who are older, it means a lot. Arguably the greatest evangelist in the modern era, certainly in the 20th century, preached to literally millions of people the gospel and seen hundreds of thousands, if not millions, come to faith. When I was in seminary, I got to know Billy Graham. It was about a five-second encounter. (laughs) I was in a long line of about 400 people. Dr. Graham had come to my school. He was not meeting with seminary students. Actually, when I walked into the place where a fundraising dinner was being held on the campus of my seminary, I realized that I was one of the few seminary students there. It was not because... I was favored by the administration because the president and the board of trustees knew that I had a lot of money I was going to give to the seminary. I was still a student. But I was there, and I got to be in this long line. And I came to Dr. Graham, and he had those piercing yet compassionate blue eyes. He looked into my eyes, and I said, Dr. Graham, it's so good to know you. And he wanted to know my name, amazingly. And I left. I'm sure he's thought about that encounter many times (laughs) since then. I know about Billy Graham. I really don't know him. Many of us have that kind of relationship with God. We know about him, but we really don't know him. What about you? Do you really know Him? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that He is able to keep that which I have committed to Him against that day? Do you know Jesus? Do you know God the Father in that way? I would feel safe in assuming that you would not even be here today if you didn't have some interest in knowing God. Running the risk of making this assumption, let me suggest to you how you can really get to know God. This is not my suggestion. This is the truth of God's Word. Knowing God may be your experience if you seek Him continually. Remember what David says in 1 Chronicles 16 11. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek Him continually. Now you say, Mike... You have this unique position where you can come and do your work at a place where you can hole up in your office and you can seek the Lord all the time and get paid for it. I've got to make a living somewhere. Well, understand, David was not a priest. David was a king. And you are not a king. None of us has the kind of obligation and responsibility of governing a whole nation Not to mention it was the people of God whom he was given the responsibility of leading. He was a warrior. He was a man who was a poet. He was a man who had varied responsibilities in the kingdom. Yet he says, seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. That's what God would have for you. 
and for me, no matter where we find ourselves in terms of our responsibilities in his kingdom. It was just as true for David as it was for the priest who was the high priest in his day, and it's true for us as well. Do you find yourself from time to time resisting seeking the Lord? Do you find something inside of you when there's that nudging of the Spirit of God to draw aside and to get to know God better? Do you feel that tug of your own selfishness in the world pulling you away from seeking the Lord? Why is that so? Well, part of it is, and I'm going to be very blunt at this point, we're just lazy. It's hard work to seek the Lord. It's the most important thing you will ever do. I've already stated that. It's the most important thing I do is seek the Lord to know Him. I've got to seek Him to know Him. He has to reveal Himself to us. But in this text, which we're considering to get today, in the ninth verse, He says, If you seek Him, He will let you find Him. Our seeking the Lord is what is necessary for Him to reveal Himself to us according to this statement in God's Word. We're a lot like the people of Israel who at the foot of Mount Sinai spoke to Moses, their great leader. And they said to him, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. They had an unhealthy understanding of who God was. We are to fear the Lord, but not in the sense of not wanting to hear from Him. It's our privilege, if we are His children, to know God. Getting to know God requires our commitment to put forth the effort to seek the Lord. And He will, in fact, let us find Him. Many years ago, I had the opportunity to interact with a piano tuner by the name of Chuck Bowman. I was looking for an opportunity to witness to him and did get the opportunity that day. He was tuning a piano in the church that I pastored. And I found out he was a graduate of the University of Chicago's School of Music. This is no lowbrow school of music. This is highbrow. For 31 years, he had earned his living in the city of Chicago as a professional musician. And he had moved out to El Paso. And I wanted to know about piano tuning as I was getting to know him. And I asked him about it. I wanted to know what was required to become a piano tuner, thinking that only a certain segment of the human race qualifies for that. I was surprised when he gave me his answer. And I took notes. I wanted to write down word for word what he said. I said, would you mind if I got a pen and paper and write this down? He said, go ahead. And this is what he said, everyone born with normal hearing is equipped to do tuning. What I do is not unusual. Learning to hear music is a matter of concentration and training. It takes practice. No one person has any advantage over another. All are born with the same equipment, he said, but most of it is wasted. This is what I drew from this. And it's a commentary really on our hearing God, knowing God. And I should pause here for a moment, talk a little further. 
regarding this word, knowing God, know the God of your father, he said to Solomon, that is David. And he said in knowing him, this word knowing certainly is about experiential knowledge, but it's more about hearing than seeing. It's hearing God. So, taking what Mr. Bowman explained to me about being able to be a piano tuner, here's some principles that I drew from that conversation. All of us have the same equipment to hear God if we are children of God. We have been equipped to hear God. The second thing, no one has an advantage, or I might say disadvantage, The third thing, hearing God should be a normal part of your existence if you are a child of God. After all, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. If we are sheep of Christ, we hear the voice of Jesus and we consequently follow him. That is, our hearing of him is designed to help us to obey him and to follow him. The fourth thing I drew from Mr. Bowman's statement about piano tuning. He said, most of us waste our opportunities to know God due to a lack of concentration, discipline, and training. My interpretation of that was, we're just too lazy. We're too undisciplined. You and I, imagine it, have been given the necessary capacity by God to hear what He has to say, and then to apply what He tells us. David broke the self-indulgent bonds of laziness by rising early to seek God. In Psalm 63.1, he says, O God, You are my God. I shall early seek You. Early seek You. Now, if any of you are honest enough with me, If you would consider yourself a night person, would you raise your hand? Would you raise your hand? Just please, all over, night people. We got some night people here. All right, I'm going to watch you and see if you stay awake. (laughs) I'll know why if you don't. All right, this is my supposition. When you stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a night person, And you make it your commitment to rise early to seek the Lord. Put Him first on your priority list in the morning to get to know Him better. And you make that your continual pursuit in your life. You're going to get a big blessing at the judgment seat of Christ. But me, I'm a morning person. I'm not going to get any credit for it, for getting up early. But you will. So ask the Lord to wake you up in the morning. Be careful. He will wake you up. And when He wakes you up, don't just lie there and try to go back to sleep. Get up and spend time alone with the Lord. If God is not first in our thoughts in the morning, He will be lacking first place the rest of our day. We need to understand that our laziness, our lack of concentration, discipline, and training results in our really not knowing the Lord our God.
The next question I would like to ask of this text of Scripture, and in effect ask God, what are the results of not seeking you, Lord? If you look at the last line of verse 9, if you forsake him, he says to Solomon, his son, he will reject you forever. That is strong language, isn't it? I thought we have the security of believers. I believe that fully. The Lord speaks in such drastic terms because He knows that evil results from not seeking Him. He says as much related to the grandson of David, the son of Solomon. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the Scripture says, did evil. Why? Because he did not seek the Lord his God. He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Notice he did not set his heart. We have to set our hearts to seek the Lord. If we do, He will let us find Him. If we don't, it could result in severe discipline in our lives. What must we do to get to know God? We're getting practical now. Please take note of this. We develop our relationship with God the same way we develop relationships with others. The first thing that we must know is this, that we must spend time with the Lord. That makes sense. How do you get to know anybody? Spending time. It's FaceTime, too. That's important. Not on Facebook, but FaceTime. Face-to-face with God. It's amazing what the Bible says about Moses and his relationship to God. It says the Lord spoke to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. Do you know the Lord wants friendship with you and me? Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into her or into him and I will dine with him and dine with her. That suggests the meal of the day, which was the leisurely meal, not breakfast, which was grab something and eat it on the run, not lunch, would be just like the equivalent of a brown bag for us, just eat enough to give you energy for the rest of your work, for the rest of the day. But when you're home and the day is over as far as work is concerned, you're sitting down to a meal. Imagine that Jesus Christ has a table for two reserved for you and for Him. He wants that kind of time with you. He died for you so you could have that time with Him. William Wilberforce Noted British politician, parliamentarian, philanthropist, abolitionist, and peer of kings during the 18th and 19th centuries said this. Not a preacher, mind you. Not a missionary in the sense that we think of missionaries. Listen to what he wrote. I must secure more time for private devotions. He was talking about time alone with the Lord. Listening to the Lord. Growing in his relationship with the Lord. I've been living far too public for me. The shortening of private devotion stars the soul. It grows lean and faint. I've been keeping too late hours. He was keeping too much time with trivial pursuits, perhaps. He was keeping too much time with too many people, which made him tired in the morning and he did not have enough time to be alone with the Lord. 
So the first thing you and I must commit ourselves to if we're going to know the Lord, we must commit ourselves to spend time with Him. This will sound maybe irreverent to you, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Can you put God on your calendar? Most of you keep a calendar. Can you put God on your calendar? And put Him first on your calendar? That you'd put Him at the top of the list? And you would start out with a certain amount of time. I don't know what would work for you. A good beginning place would be a minimum of 15 minutes. And I'm almost ashamed to even suggest that little amount of time. But if you took 15 minutes to sit down alone, maybe get on your knees before the Lord and open the Word of God and let the Spirit of God speak to you, Jesus will speak to you. You will hear His voice in the Word of God. The Spirit of the Lord will speak to you through the Word of God. Here's the second thing. To know God, we must spend time alone with Him. We don't get to know God in a crowd. We get to know Him when we're alone. When I was pursuing my wife, wanting her to be my wife, she had not yet agreed to that, but I loved spending time with her. And I made sure I had some alone time. We were together with groups, but I wanted to be alone with her because I knew I would never really get to know her if I only saw her where there were other people. And it's true with our Lord. We can't get to know Him unless we spend time alone with Him. The third thing is, to know God, we must spend time alone with Him, listening to Him. Solomon, long the king of Israel, when he wrote these words in what we now know as the book of Ecclesiastes, says to the people, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick in your heart nor hasty with your mouth to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. We are to be silent before God. To listen to God. To hear from Him. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish theologian philosopher, said this, A man prayed and he thought that prayer was talking to God. But he became more and more quiet and he learned that prayer is listening to God, not talking to God. When I come before the Lord, you come before the Lord to get to know Him. We are to assume the position of a listener. Asking Him to open our ears so that we may hear. In the book of Psalms, I believe it's the 40th Psalm, the King James Version, David is the writer of that Psalm. And he makes this comment about God. And this is poetic language. It says, God has dug me an ear. It's 
What would be the equivalent of going to an ear, nose, and throat specialist and let that doctor clean out the debris that may have collected in your ear, making it difficult for you to hear? That's what God did for David. That's what God does for us when we come to know Him. He digs out an ear so we can hear what He has to say to us. Amos spoke on behalf of God and listened to what he says in Amos 8, 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. I must tell you today that the very thought of such a famine sends chills down my spine. To think that God would no longer speak to you or to me. And the thing which we need to understand is these words were written to a people who had stiff-armed God. They were the people of God. They were written to Israel. And Israel had gotten so busy with their religion that they no longer took time to really hear from God. Four hundred years passed between God speaking through the prophet Malachi and the coming of John the Baptist, the last prophet of the Old Testament era, on the scene. May God grant us the understanding that we need to spend time alone listening to Him if we hope to know Him. And that time must be unhurried time alone listening to Him. Not rushing through. If you make 15 minutes on your calendar, you say, okay, got that done. Let me get out and do what's really important today. It's where you would want to stop. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, this statement that I will apply to what I've just said. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, it says, do not be in a hurry to leave the presence of the king. Now, we don't have a king in America. And you may not like President Trump. But if you were to go into the presence of President Trump by his invitation, you would probably not leave the room until he dismissed you. And there would be some signal, if he didn't say you're dismissed, one of his handlers would come, open the door, and let you know it's time to go. Look, when we come before the Lord, we're in the presence of the King of Kings. And the Lord of Lords, the creator of all the universe. And for some unknown reason, he wants to take time with you and with me. He wants to reveal himself to us, but we must spend time alone listening to him in an unhurried manner if that is going to occur. We, in order to know him, must seek his face and not his hand. Remember what David writes in 1 Chronicles 16.11? David says, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His face continually. The English Standard Version says, Seek His presence continually. Probably the NIV says something similar to that. We're to seek His face. Now, here's the way most of us approach God. We seek His hand. We want Him to do something for us. Back to the analogy of my seeking my wife, pursuing my wife before she was my wife. When we were together, I didn't look at her hands. 
I know what they look like. I've been married to her for 46 years, so I know what her hands look like. But I sought her face. I wanted to see her expression, particularly in her eyes. I wanted to look at her face to face, just like the Lord spoke to David. I mean, excuse me, Moses face to face. That's what we should want, to seek his face. It's okay to seek his hand. In fact, he commands us to. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. He says, call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. We're to seek the Lord. We're to seek His face first. And once we've gotten to know Him, then we'll know how to seek His hand without being selfish in our seeking. And here's the last thing. It's not in this text. It's implied because it talks in this text about Solomon not only knowing the God of his father, but serving him with a whole heart and a willing mind, we must obey the Lord. In John fourteen twenty one, we hear Jesus say this. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him. And listen to this last promise. And I will reveal myself to him. I'll disclose myself to him. Do you get the picture? When I'm alone with the Lord, listening to the Lord, and I'm hearing from the Lord, he's not just giving me information so I'll be smarter about him. He's giving me direction also about what he would have me to be and to do. And to the degree that I apply what He tells me to that same level, I get to know Him. Maybe you have been blocked in your knowledge of God because you have failed to obey the Lord in some area. You're withholding your obedience from the Lord. David says in Psalm 60. 618, if I regarded sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We must be in that kind of position of humility before the Lord that will lead us to be obedient to the Lord. So, how are you to know the Lord? Spend time alone, listening in an unhurried manner, seeking the face of God, not the hand of God so that you may be obedient to the Lord. There is what the Bible teaches us. What will be God's response to your seeking Him? Well, the text tells us in verse 9, about two-thirds of the way through this long verse, He says, if you seek Him, He will let you find Him. That's beautiful, isn't it? He will let us find Him. What a beautiful promise from the Lord to us. It brought back some memories that are almost 40 years old for me. My son, when he was getting big enough to play, he and I would play. I taught him how to play hide and seek. And we would play it always in the confines of our house. And I would say to him, now Josh, you close your eyes and you count to ten And Daddy is going to go and hide, and you come find me. Do you understand, Josh? He said, yes. And he was excited about the possibility. So I said, okay, I'm going to go hide. Now shut your eyes. And you know how kids are. 
He did this for about one second, then he's looking around. I said, shut your eyes, Josh. I can't hide until you shut your eyes and count to ten. He says, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine, ten. And when I hid, and many of you, if not most of you have done this, when I hid, I didn't hide in a place where he couldn't find me. I hid in a place that I could be found. I wanted him to find me. The whole matter of playing the game with him. I wanted to be with him and let him get to know me, but I wanted his fellowship. I wanted his relationship. It was a relation build, relationship building activity, was it? And he would find me. Do you know our God says, if we seek him, he will let us find him? If you were to go to the 45th chapter of Isaiah you would discover a discussion there about how God conceals Himself from His people. In a way, He does sort of hide Himself from us because He wants us to sense His absence, having once known His presence, so that we would be drawn to His presence and we would get a little bit of urgency in our seeking Him. That may be happening to your heart this morning. You may have sensed, you know, I haven't been seeking the Lord I do not know the Lord as I ought to know the Lord. I need to re-engage my pursuit of the Lord. I need to get closer to the Lord because it's in my relationship to Him that all things significant reside. So, He'll let us find Him. There are a couple of things which happen when we seek the Lord. We will know Him. And remember what David says to Solomon, you will know the God of your Father. Now let's think about that for a moment. Let me just give you this general statement. David's God was a God of grace. You know the little acronym for grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches... Think about some of the riches of God's grace that David experienced. He experienced the grace of God's impartiality. It shows up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When God speaks to the prophet, the man of God Samuel, and instructs him to go to the house of Jesse, because among the sons of Jesse, there is one whom God has earmarked to be the successor to the evil king Saul. So Samuel, as was his custom, obeys the Lord. He goes there. He arrives there. He tells Jesse why he's there. And what does Jesse do? He does what any Middle Eastern, Near Eastern person will do. He calls the eldest son in. Eliab was his name. And when Eliab entered the room, Samuel thought, this is the one. But the Spirit of God speaks to him and says, this is not the one. And then the next son in the birth order comes in, and the third son comes in. Their names are given there in 1 Samuel 16. And then there are four more sons, and in each case, the Spirit of God says to Samuel, not the one, 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 not the one. And then Samuel turns to Jesse and he says, do you not have another son? He says, yes, he's just a boy. He's just a shepherd. He's out keeping the sheep. And then Samuel says, bring him in. We're not going to sit down until he gets in. 
He's fetched. He comes in. And when he walks in the room, it's David. And the Spirit of God says, He's the one. You see, men, the Word of God says there in 1 Samuel 16, look at the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. He knew the heart that David had. David, even as a boy, was making it his practice to seek the Lord so he could know the Lord. He's not partial. He's the God of impartiality. In the Old Testament, we know that, but in the New Testament, in the books of Romans and Galatians, the Scripture says this about God. He is no respecter of persons. In the book of Galatians, the Scripture tells us that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. That would be Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. We are one in Christ Jesus. So, in the kingdom of God, everyone is viewed equally by God. Impartiality. We have different roles to play, but we are measured by God's grace as being equals. Here's the second thing. If we were to go to the next chapter, 17, maybe the more familiar chapter than 16, because it's the story of David and Goliath. And when David faces off, we don't know how old David was. Most scholars think probably in his late teens. The average height of a man in that day might have been six feet, let's say. That's maybe being generous. We know the measurement of Goliath is given to us in that chapter. He was nine and a half feet tall. That's giving away three and a half feet. That's a big difference, isn't it? And so, what has Goliath been doing? He's been mocking the God of Israel, cursing. He has been making fun of, at the same time, the army of Israel. And here comes David. David doesn't have any armor on. Saul had offered his armor, but he put it on and he said, this just isn't me. I'm going to be me under the Lord's hand. And he goes out and he says to Goliath, this day the Lord is going to deliver you into my hand. And he did it. So God of David is a God of impartiality and He's a God who delivers us. Thank God. Has He delivered you? If you know Jesus, He's delivered you out of the domain of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of light. Here's a third thing we learn from David. In the 18th chapter, the Bible says, Everywhere that David went, he had great success because the Lord was with him. So this aspect of the grace of God shown to David is his companionship. There are people in this room who are lonely today. You may be single and you're lonely. You may be married and you may be lonely because of a stressful relationship. The good news for you and me is that if we know the God of David, He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We simply need to set more time aside to spend time getting to know Him. And we need to seek His face continually. All the time. In our hearts, in our minds. Always our minds go back to Him to know Him. Also, the Scriptures tell us that not only is the God of David a God of impartiality, and He is a God who is 
a God who is there for us no matter what happens. He's also a God of forgiveness. And this is lovely. When David had sinned, committing adultery and murder, the prophet comes to him and points his sin out. He's been covering it up for over a year, thinking he can get away with it. He's done everything he could think of to do that and to keep this secret a secret. And he's exposed, affirming what the Bible says in the book of Numbers, be sure your sin will find you out. And the prophet says, the Lord has taken away your sin. What a relief it is to know a God like that. That's a God of grace, isn't it? Certainly it is. Now, here's the last thing I'm going to mention. It's in this text, actually, where it talks about that God speaks and He says to us that Solomon will be a son to God and God will be a father to him. I was greatly privileged to have a father who was a loving father. He worked out of town a lot. He would be gone on average probably three days, four days a week, maybe day and night. And I'll never forget as a boy, before I was a brother, my sister was born later in my life, mother would say from time to time, Daddy's coming home tonight. And I would just get so excited Daddy was coming home. Every time he came home off of a trip, he'd bring me something from the trip. It might have been some little trinket or something to eat, a candy or something. I loved to receive those presents from my father, but I especially loved his presence. That's what I really loved when Daddy would come. As a boy, when I got old enough, Daddy would take me hunting and fishing. He would play ball with me. He taught me how to play baseball and basketball. He was a father who was very engaged with me. And whenever we were going on a trip together, the most memorable of all was when I was eight years old, maybe seven, I can't remember, probably eight years old, and he took me with him to St. Louis, Missouri, to see the Cardinals play the Philadelphia Phillies. And from that day forward, and this is not a very good example he probably set for him, I'm a Cardinals fan to this day. <laughs> but the time we had together was awesome. Just to be with my dad was awesome. Do you know the Bible says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give, know how to give good gifts to you? The Father wants time with you. That was true of David. It's true of you if you know him. He wants that time with you. So, how do we get that time? Well, we seek him. We seek him continually. Turn to First Chronicles fifteen, Second Chronicles, excuse me, fifteen, fifteen, chapter fifteen and chapter sixteen of Second Chronicles records the reign of Asa, who was a descendant of David and Solomon. He was also an ancestor of Jesus. And there's one verse, just the 15th verse. Look at it. And all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, sought God earnestly, and he let them find him. 
Do you sense this recurring theme? But look at the last thing. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. What a benefit. Certainly to know God is to have eternal life. That's what Jesus said. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. How do we know God? Through Jesus. He says, He who has seen Me has seen the Father. If you had known Me, you would have known My Father also. Do you know the Lord? If you seek Him, you will find Him. If you seek Him with all your heart. God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and He says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on His name while He is near. Would you bow your head with me? Have you called on the name of the Lord yet? While He is near. There may come a moment when He's no longer near. He's been speaking to you today. And the Word of God says there is no other name under heaven by which we are saved from our sins in the name of Jesus, whose name means Savior. Would you reach out to Jesus today, call on His name, and be saved if you have not been saved? If you have been saved but you have neglected your pursuit of God, you've let other things get in the way, would you say to the Lord, please forgive me, Lord, for pushing you out to the edge of my life rather than keeping you at the center of my life? Lord, please regain full control of my life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen.